Well, happy Super Bowl Sunday. Everybody excited about the big game tonight? All right. Well, tell you what, that's nothing like it, right? <laughs> How many of you are pulling for the Falcons? Anybody? All right. Do we have any uh, lost people in here? Do we have any Patriots? All right. All right, a few of us. All right, well, uh, best of luck to the team that you're cheering on. Uh, we really are glad that you're here with us uh, this morning. And, and like Dustin said, we, we are continuing a series that we've been in uh, for the past few weeks here at Crossroads. You know, something funny happened to me uh, recently that I just wanted to share with you. Uh, back in the fall, I was informed that I needed to renew my driver's license. It was nearing the expiration date. And one thing I've never heard anybody say is, I just love the BMV, right? Anybody in here, you just look forward to going there. You find excuses to go. None of us, right? I mean, the lines are long and you wait around and everybody there just seems to be in a really bad mood. You know what I'm saying? And so you can understand why I put going off to the BMV, is, put it off as long as I possibly could. Well, on the morning that I finally decided to go, I walked in, and I was surprised to bump into our executive pastor, Paul Lingy. He was there with his son, Michael. Michael was getting his driver's permit. And now, if you know Paul, you know that he gives a really good first impression and that he comes across as a very polite gentleman at first glance. But there's this other side of Paul that you may not know, and that is that he loves practical jokes. He's been known to get in trouble a time or two because of his ability to just cross the line. And as somebody who's never crossed the line in any setting before, um, I, I don't know what that's like, all right? And so this is an area that I've really challenged Paul to grow in lately. And, and so we're sitting there, we're waiting to be called by the clerk. And, and as we're waiting, Paul turns to me and he says, hey, Patrick, whenever they take your photo for your driver's license, I dare you to give the Gertrude when the clerk tells you to smile. Now, for the past four years, the Gertrude is a face that one of us will make at the other person. If one of us is walking down the hallway and we see that the other is in a meeting and it tends to be a little bit serious. And so the Gertrude's this kind of like nasty, disturbing looking face that, you know, really tries to get the other person in the meeting to laugh at a really inappropriate time. And, and so it's kind of a joke between the two of us. And, and whenever he dared me to do this face, when the clerk asked me to smile, I, I first hesitated and, and I resisted. I said that I resisted because I didn't want to be a bad example in front of Michael, his 16-year-old son. But, but really, I didn't want to do this face because I knew that it would probably decrease my chances of getting out of any tickets in the future. You know what I'm saying? So a few minutes later, the clerk calls my name. I walk up front there and I give her all my paperwork. A few minutes later, she then says, okay, let's go to the photo booth station. And on the count of three, make sure you smile. Now, seven weeks later, I finally received my license in the mail. And I got to be honest with you, I had completely forgotten about the dare that day. All right. And so early last month, I finally received the license in the mail. And when I opened up the envelope, I was really surprised about what I saw. Here's a picture of my driver's license. Check it out. That's just creepy, isn't it? <laughs> now, what makes this funnier or maybe even Sadder is the fact that your driver's license picture isn't something that just goes away. I mean, it's not something that's temporary, right? I mean, it literally follows you everywhere you go. And, and there have been a few moments since I received my new license where I was forced to give somebody proof of identification. And, and I got to tell you, I've had moments where I'm like, I, 
I really regret taking Paul up on that dare. You know what I'm saying? And people will look at it and, and what ends up happening is they will take my picture and then they will match it up with me and they will try to make sure that I am who I really say that I am. And, and whenever that happens, I either feel this kind of pressure to explain myself, to justify, hey, this was a dare, you know, that's not really my smile. Or I kind of go to the opposite extreme and I feel this pressure to kind of lie about it. Like, yeah, that is my real smile. You know, do you have a problem with it? And I think in a similar kind of way, that, that's how a lot of us tend to approach our past, right? I mean, we've all made decisions before that we really regret, and it tends to follow us around in our back pocket. We seem to, we can't get rid of it, right? And yet whenever it kind of rises to the top, whenever it rises to the surface, we feel the need to either justify it, to explain what happened, or we just end up lying about it, right? And doesn't that describe some of our stories? You see, we've all done things before that we don't want anyone else to know about. We all have stuff in our past that maybe somebody did to us that have, it's brought us a lot of guilt and shame and just insecurity, right? And so whenever those things rise to the top, our tendency is to either, again, explain it, to justify it, or we tend to just lie about it and diminish it and say, well, it really wasn't that big a deal. And Anybody in here? And that's, and that's some of our stories. Again, for the past few weeks, we've been in this series uh, rooted in a New Testament book in Scripture called 1 Corinthians. And more than a book, this really was a letter that was written to a church in the first century uh, 2,000 years ago. All right, Now, this letter was written by a guy named Paul who started this church. And, and understand that in all the ancient world at the time, the one place you wanted to live was Corinth, where this church was located. All right, It was a happening place. I mean, every day in Corinth was kind of like going to Woodstock. It was very free-flowing, and you just kind of lived how you wanted. And Except the Corinthians, I think, knew what the definition of personal hygiene meant, all right? Now, as these men and women, a part of this church, were coming to know Jesus, and they were understanding what he had done for them, they brought with them a lot of baggage. Their past kind of followed them. It was tough for them to disconnect where they had been in life with this new life that they supposedly had in Jesus. And, and so one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter was to remind them of who they were. You see, they were walking through a little bit of an identity crisis, and their life was a mess. And so where we're going to pick up today is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn there now. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a Bible right there in front of you. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's on one of those tables as you walked in a moment ago. All right. And uh, that is our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that with you when you leave here today. Uh, again, that, that is our gift to you. 1 Corinthians is towards the back of your Bibles, right in between the books of Romans and 2 Corinthians. And we're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4. All right. Now, the one message that kind of started this revolution, the greatest movement the world has ever seen called the church, is really based upon this message that who we were doesn't have to be who we continue to be. That all because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we can receive a new identity, we can be given a new name in spite of what we bring to the, uh, to the table, in, in spite of what our past may look like. And, and so right in chapter 4, Paul begins to, or I guess continues to challenge the Corinthians to keep their focus on Jesus. That it's not about anything else, it's not about any one person, it, it's about Christ. And, and so check out what he says in, in verse 1 of, of chapter 4 of our text. Here's what Paul says. He says, this then is how you ought to regard us. He's talking about church leaders, pastors, elders. 
As servants of Christ, wow, that voice cracked there. I'm not going through puberty, okay? <laughs> I don't think. And uh, as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And so, again, he's showing this church what it's like to work in the church from, from his perspective. Now, right here, Paul basically says that as pastors and church leaders, it's really important that you remember that we are simply flawed, sinful, broken people who have no hope besides what Jesus did for us on the cross. And and again, the Corinthians had lost focus. They had forgotten that. And so Paul says that that as pastors, we've been entrusted with the mysteries that that God has revealed. What's that all about? What's he talking about? What's he talking about there? Well, the mystery that God has made known is that we can find freedom from our past, present, and future sin because of the cross. You see, Jesus was treated like a slave so that we could walk free. And so that means that he's not intimidated. He's not surprised by real sin and brokenness that we've all been a part of and that some of us deal with every single day. Before Jesus began his ministry, one day he he stood up in front of a crowd of people and and he made known what he was all about, the reason why he came to earth. Check out what he says in Luke chapter 4. Jesus says, he, talking about his father, has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners to set the oppressed free. One year ago, I uh, spoke at a local prison, and before I got up to teach that day, I was interacting with some of the inmates, and, and one guy in particular had been an inmate for over 20 years, and, and so I was just curious about what it was like to, to be in prison that long, so I said, man, what, what is it like to, to be in prison for over two decades? I mean, he said, you know, honestly, it just becomes your new sense of normal. He said, I've been here so long that I have forgotten what it's like to live life outside these walls. And whether we know it or not, I think that's some of our stories today. That you have felt trapped in your circumstances, you have been kind of pressed down by where you've been, and you've been in your surroundings for so long that your walls have spoken to you, and the thing is, you've begun to believe what your walls have spoken to you, right? And, and maybe your walls right now tell you that, that you're nothing more than a meth addict. You, your walls tell you you're, you're nothing more than a lousy mom. You're nothing more than a single dad. You, you're nothing more than somebody who's had an abortion. You're nothing more than someone who struggles with same-sex attraction. Your walls tell you that, that you're nothing more than somebody who has PTSD. You, you ever been there before? You see, we can find ourselves in the midst of these circumstances for so long that we have forgotten what it's like to live life outside these walls. But according to what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 4, he's actually come to break down those barriers, to break through our prison gates. And so what would it look like for you to be free from your prison? Look at what Paul continues to say in verse 3. He says, "I I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. Paul says. Now, evidently, certain people in the church didn't like Paul. All right, I know that never happens. People don't like each other in the church, but evidently it was happening here in Corinth. Some saw him as being too harsh or direct. And in verse 3, Paul makes it known, though, his primary job wasn't to earn popularity points. His primary job wasn't to be you know, liked and, and popular among the people. No, his mission while in Corinth was simply to point people to Jesus, to let people know that freedom could be found in him and him alone. You see, the way that Jesus lived that we read about in his biographies tell us that he was far more interested in releasing prison doors than protecting his own reputation. 
And so that's why we as a church here at Crossroads must continue to make this a safe place for those who are lost, broken, those who are addicted, those who, who just feel oppressed in life, those who are just beat down and depressed. It seems like more than ever recently, we've heard just story after story of people who are coming here to Crossroads and are, and are experiencing this freedom that, that Christ has promised. And it's exciting to be a part of it. It's exciting to hear. But there is a little problem with it, and it goes like this, that this hour in 1045, we are at over 90% occupancy in our building. We are over 90% full. I, I can't even still say that word, occupancy. We are nine, over 90% full is what I'm trying to say, all right? And so if we don't create more space for people who are coming here and want to be introduced to Jesus, then we risk turning people away. And so as we as a staff are trying to come up with some temporary solutions to identify more space, one thing that could really help us in the meantime, we've talked about some lately, is to simply attend our Saturday night service. And so if you're a member, if you regularly uh, attend Crossroads, uh, simply attending our Saturday night service would free up a lot of space here on Sunday morning for people who are coming and want to hear about what Christ offers and, and provides. And, and so we just want you to consider doing that and... Uh, I mean, what else could be better than sleeping in on Sunday morning if you go on Saturday night, right? All right? And so that can just be a practical way for you to continue to be on mission and for you to help and uh, make sure that the people here are hearing about what Jesus provides. Let's keep going. Let's look at verse 4 here, okay? Paul, Paul says this. He says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, the way we think and how we feel, Paul says, isn't always accurate. It's not always true. Paul wrote that he wasn't even the best judge of himself. And so it's possible for us to live in a life for so long that we become numb. In verse 4, that word innocent in the Greek is a legal term that describes someone who is being acquitted from, from a crime, being released from punishment. Paul is saying that, that we can't defend ourselves. We can't justify ourselves because we're all guilty. Only Jesus has the authority and the power to forgive our sin and to release us from what we deserve. This parallels what Paul writes in another letter, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says it like this, Therefore there is now no condemnation, there is no penalty, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus offers to pay the debt that we owe because of our brokenness. Now his death was unlike any other death in all of human history because it's what's called a substitutionary death. In other words, he died in our rightful place. You see, Jesus had to die for God to forgive us so that justice in the universe would be upheld. You see, apart from the cross, for God to just forgive us would be like a weak judge turning loose the most evil of criminals. You see, justice demands payment. Therefore, the cross is where we see God's love, mercy, holiness, and justice intersect. And so here's the thing. Jesus didn't go to the cross in spite of our past. No, Jesus went to the cross because of our past. And that means that Jesus not only has the ability and power to deal with it, but he can actually free you from it as well. Later on in 1 Corinthians 4, he says this, verse 5, Paul writes, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light, he will expose what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And so Paul's saying, look, a day is coming when Jesus will unveil what we've said, done, and thought when we thought no one was looking. And yet what we hide are the very things that God promises to expose and unveil. 
And so for the next few minutes, what I want to do is just see what's at stake for us whenever we choose to hide the parts of our life that we don't want anyone else to know about, all right? Now, the first thing goes like this, that you and I, we, we tend to hide what we fear. We hide what we fear. I mean, we cover up those parts of our life that we think define us and that may cause people around us to think differently about us or may have a, a viewer, a, a smaller perspective of us or a lesser perspective of us. And we think that digging up those parts of our life, it's going to cause more frustration, more shouting matches, an increase in medication or more drinks at night. I mean, it's only going to cause pain. And, and so our natural tendency is to keep those things hidden so that we can keep the peace and, and we can maintain that perspective that people in our life have of us, right? One time at uh, my previous church in Dallas, I was teaching on this very same thing. And, and after service, one, one guy came up to me and I could tell that he was burdened by something. He just walked around feeling a little bit shamed and, and he introduced himself to me. Then he kind of leaned in and he mumbled to me. He said, he said, Patrick, I've done something that I haven't told anyone else about. He went on to share with me that a about a year before, he had had sex with one of his wife's closest friends. And, and again, he hadn't told anybody about this. I was the first person that, that he told this to. And, and so I simply responded by saying, well, you need to know that Jesus can forgive you for your past, present, and future sin. You, you and God, you're, you're good because of what Jesus did for you. But, I said, if you want to experience freedom and you want to experience what healing in this life looks like, part of that process requires you going to your wife and confessing to what you've done. Now, I assumed that... He was so tired of living in fear of someone finding out that he was going to jump at the opportunity to, to live in freedom. But this is what he said to me whenever I told him what he needed to do according to what the Bible says. He said, I, I can't do it. He said, I can't tell her what I've done because there's just no telling how my wife is going to react. I, I think I'm just going to continue on as normal. I got to tell you, I walked away so sad for him. Because basically what he, is, what he told me in that moment was, I would much rather live a lie by avoiding responsibility than to actually step towards freedom and do the difficult work of coming clean in regards to what I've done. And you see, some of us, that, that describes where we've been. That describes how we operate on a daily basis. I mean, deliverance is a painful process. Running after freedom and restoration, it's not an easy task. It's why the Bible tells us that there was a chapter in the life of God's people when he delivered them from slavery. And in the midst of deliverance, as they had been released from bondage, there was a group of Israelites, God's people, who started complaining. And they were wanting to go back into Egypt where they were slaves again. Why? That seems crazy to us. Well, because slavery is what they knew. There was something comfortable about what had always been. There was something comfortable about being in slavery. That the difficult work of walking through deliverance just didn't, wasn't worth it for them. And so we hide what we tend to fear. Here's the other thing. It goes like this. Number two, what we hide controls us more than it frees us. What we hide controls us more than it frees us. Now, one thing I've learned is that I think I'll be freer if I keep some stuff from my past in the past, right? I mean, if people see a very sanitized and filtered version of me, then I'll be more respected and loved. But, but is it possible that we give our brokenness a lot more power when we keep it hidden, when we put it in our closet? 
You see, hiding is really about denial. It's a form of pretending that appears to be safer than honesty and vulnerability. Now, as painful as this may be, freedom in Christ requires that we look at our past so that we can better understand why we are the way that we are today. A lot of us carry around a lot of shame, guilt, and insecurities because of things that you may be observed or experienced as kids. Not necessarily sin, but just stuff that you were a part of or you saw in a mom or dad. You see, our past dominates us and controls us more than we even realize, more than some of us think. My wife, Savannah, and I have been watching this show, This Is Us, uh, recently. How many of you have been watching that show on NBC? Yeah, several of us. Well, on the first episode, one of the main characters, uh, Randall, he, you, you learn rather quickly that he was adopted at a very young age. And, and so on the first episode, he goes on this mission to find his uh, biological father. And so he hires a private investigator. And when he finally identifies where he lives, he goes and he knocks on his biological father's door. And, and this is what he says whenever his biological dad opens the door. Seeing him for the very first time, here's what Randall says. He says, I don't want anything from you. Do you see that car parked out in front of our house? Randall points to his big Mercedes S550. He says, it cost me $143,000 and I bought it for cash. I think I turned out all right, which might surprise some folks considering 36 years ago, you left me on a fire station doorstep. I came here today so that I could look you in the eye and say to you and then get back into my fancy car and finally prove to myself and to you that I didn't need a thing from you. And bam, he just kind of drops the mic right there, and it's like, whoa. But you see, for Randall, I mean, he had the appearance of success. He, he had his stuff together. He had a great family. He was very rich and, and wealthy. And yet, in that moment, it became obvious that stuff from his past was still manipulating and controlling him. He felt like he never measured up, even though he was left and abandoned and rejected as a child, as a baby. 36 years later, he still felt like, I'm not worth it. And so much of his life was about running after this image that would make him more acceptable, that would make him more proving in, in, other, people's, in other people's lives. And so our natural tendency is to think that we are defined by what we did or, or what someone did to us. And, and so some of those things aren't very glamorous. And, and so again, we try to keep them hidden. And yet those labels tend to tell us that we are nothing more than what happened, right? Our past dominates us more than we realize. I've talked uh, with you before about back in the fall how I went on this men's retreat out in Colorado. And one thing that we learned on this retreat is that we all have what's called a shadow. Now, shadow is a, uh, a term that was coined by a Swiss psychiatrist named Carl Jung back in the early 20th century. And, and the basic premise of having a shadow goes like this, that at a very young age, you learn certain behaviors that are rewarded and that are praised. And so very early on, you learn to do more of those things. Now, on the contrary, you also learn some stuff about you that doesn't get rewarded. You might get punished for it, or you might be shamed, or you might be humiliated. And, and so you learn early on to, to not do those things, or to hide, deny, or suppress whatever that is in, in your past. And, and so it can be anything from your emotions to how you express anger or maybe to, you know, your sexuality. This is stuff that, again, you, you saw at a very early age that if it's punished, if it's shamed, you, you keep that stuff hidden. And when we hide, deny, or suppress it, it always ends up spilling out other places. It always ends up coming out in other forms. This is why lately maybe you went off on somebody that had nothing to do with what you were frustrated about. And you think, well, where did that come from? This may be why you feel this constant pressure to keep up with a colleague, a coworker, or maybe you feel like... A, 
Every time I talk to him, I've got to mention the name of somebody popular or famous that I recently interacted with. Why? Because you want that person to be impressed with you and and you want to run after respect. Look again at verse 5 in our text. Paul writes this. He, God, will bring to light what is hidden and, and it, what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Now, here's the thing. Our, our motives are fueled by who we think we are. And while our motives as Christians don't necessarily disqualify us from heaven, spending eternity with God, God's judgment of us as believers will be based upon this one question. It goes like this. How much did you trust the identity that Jesus purchased for you? How much did you live in that identity that Jesus gave you? You see, it's possible for us to be saved, but for us to not really be living in freedom. And some of us are children of God, but instead we're living down to the label that we hear whispered in our mind all day long. Now, I want you to really personalize this, and I want you to think hard about it. What label do you believe about yourself? I mean, you may know that it's a lie, but, but what word describes that one moment in your life that you think defines you? Many of you are carrying around this label, even as I talk, it's on your mind, you know what it is. For you, your, your label might be drunk, mistake, addict, failure, divorced, infertility, abused, PTSD, overweight, stupid, widow, single mom, single dad, ugly, same-sex attraction, depression. I mean, what name do you hear whispered over and over again in your mind? One day while Jesus was walking down a road in, in Jerusalem, he came upon a really famous pool in the first century that many believed was a, had supernatural powers to heal your body of whatever limitation that you had. And, and so there were just literally hundreds of dozens of people all around this pool who were crippled and, and were lame. But John tells us that Jesus then narrowed in on one particular guy who had been laying there for about 38 years. Can you imagine that, laying in one place for 38 years? Check out what we read happens next. In John chapter 5, verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a really long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? I mean, words can't really describe the amount of frustration and shame this man felt for, for having a body that didn't work for the past four decades. And as if his disability wasn't frustrating enough, Jesus asked him a no-brainer here, Right? I mean, for those of us who maybe have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, how would you have answered Jesus' question right here? And check out what he says next. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else always goes down ahead of me. I, I get cut off, in other words, Jesus, this guy says. Now, he totally plays the victim card here, doesn't he? He's basically saying, you know, no, nobody cares about me. And every time I try to hobble into the water, somebody cuts me off. And, and my parents just left me out here all by myself. And they told me, good luck, break a leg. And, and I've been here for 38 years. And, and he was in prison. This man was imprisoned by the names that had been thrown onto him and projected on him. And yet, let's go back to that question that Jesus asked in verse 6. Take a look at it again. He, he says, do, do you want to get well? Now, what's really interesting about this question that Jesus asked is, is where we get this word well from. 
Now, it's a very different word that Jesus would normally use before he would perform a miracle, before he would heal somebody. All right, the, the word that we have here in John chapter 5 for, for well literally means to be whole, to experience full satisfaction, to live life as it was meant to, to, to be lived. Now, normally, whenever Jesus would perform a miracle, he always used the Greek word sozo. Now, sozo literally means to be rescued, to be saved, all right? And so the question is, why would Jesus change it up right here? What's the difference? Well, you see, it's possible that Jesus really wasn't talking so much about matters of salvation, although he probably was. But it's as if Jesus is saying to this man right here, hey, I can not only save you for eternity, but I can give you the better life that you've been really running after here or now. I can free you. I can give you that better life. But but I have to know, are are you willing to do what it takes for, for for that to happen? the past few moments, some of us are having conversations with our minds that go something like this, but, but it wasn't my fault. I, I didn't choose to do that. It, it was something that, that was done to me. And, and yet Jesus, he, he says to each of us, he says, I, I, look, I, I didn't ask you whose fault it was. I'm not asking you why you keep living the way that you do. I'm simply wondering, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be free? Do, do you want to get well? And so that leads us to our last point. It goes like this, that labels lose power when we refuse to hide. You see, for far too long, some of us have been walking around with so much pressure and, and weight, you feel like you don't belong. You feel isolated from your family. You carry around this perception that everyone is always talking bad about you. You've been hurt. You, you never received what somebody owed you. But you see, the reality is that grace becomes real for you when you uncover the parts of your life that disqualify you from it from the beginning. Grace becomes real for us when we uncover the parts of our life that make us the most undeserving of it. Grace must be received. It must be accepted. And so in other words, if we don't admit to guilt and shame and insecurities, then the thing is we can't really receive forgiveness. We can't live this whole life that Jesus talks about. Understand that God is not mad at you. He doesn't hate you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not just putting up with you in life. And so it's possible that today is the day that some of us really begin to believe that and we begin to live accordingly. You know, in a way, the labels that we carry around, whatever that may be for you, they actually lost its power 2,000 years ago whenever Jesus hung on the cross. And Because the Bible tells us that an exchange actually happened in that moment. The very last phrase that we know Jesus said before he died is a very simple phrase. He, he simply shouted out, it is finished. And basically what Jesus was saying in that moment is that freedom is here. You don't have to wait any longer. You can be forgiven. I can give you a new name. I've already done that work for you. The question is, do you accept it? Can you receive it? You know, sometimes we learn best by experience. It's one thing for us to hear something and the tendency is to kind of go in one ear and and out the other and we forget it. And the truth is, I bet a lot of us, we walked in here and and we've heard before that God loves us, he forgives us, that grace is available to us and our past doesn't have to define us. But if you're like me, it's hard to forgive yourself sometimes, right? It's hard for you to actually connect what you know up here into your heart. And so... For some of us, we need to take a step towards freedom. You know that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven, but you still think that right here, right now, I have so much guilt and shame in my life, I just don't know how else to, how else to operate. And so I want us to really experience this. Now, you may think that this is a little bit weird and, and you don't have to do it, okay? 
But I want us to actually step towards removing the labels that have maybe dominated us. And I want you to really personalize what Jesus did for you on the cross 2,000 years ago. Now, on the end of each row, you'll find some cards. And, and that's the case for the, those of you who are worshiping with us in the chapel as well. I want you to go ahead and pass these cards out, all right? Now, you'll notice that the card has a fill-in-the-blank on it that says, I am a blank. Just a few minutes ago, I asked you to think of that label that you carry around. I want you to go ahead and take a pen and I want you to fill in that blank. What is that label that you carry around? Now, here's the challenge I wanna put before you. Don't, san don't, don't sanitize it, don't clean it up, even if it's a cuss word. What is that word that you hear whispered in your mind all day long? And then whenever you're finished filling it out, the band is gonna sing some songs. I want you to go to one of the four crosses here. There are two here on the sides, two up front here. If you're worshiping with us in the chapel, that one cross up front there, I want you to take a hammer and a nail and I want you to hammer your label to the cross. Now, if you're worried about maybe somebody seeing the label that you have written down, then simply turn it upside down. There's no judgment there. But for us to really receive who God says that we are, we must let go of the names that we've convinced ourselves define us. And so by nailing your label to the cross, by nailing your label to the cross, I want you to let go of what you've been carrying around and actually receive what God says is true about who you are. So we're gonna sing a couple worship songs and, and you do that as, as, we, as we go into worship. And whenever you're ready, you, you just head over to the crosses and, and you start nailing. And after a few songs, I'll come back up here. Okay, don't worry if you still hear some hammering going on. If you wanna do this after service, that, that's fine as well. We can be here all day if we need to, all right? And after you nail your label to the cross, simply go back to your seat. We're, we're not done with our service, okay? I'm gonna pray for us and then uh, it's go time and, and, and you go to the cross and you nail it, all right? Let's pray. God, I know that a lot of us here right now feel a little bit ambushed by what was talked about today because we didn't think that that part of our life would get brought up or, or that memory would resurface in our mind. And, and yet the truth is our past dominates us more than we think, more than we realize. And I'm just speaking from personal experience. To God, I, I know what is true. I know what, what you say about me. I know that forgiveness is available, but, but sometimes it's just tough to live in that because it's tough letting ourselves up off the mat. And so I pray and ask that you would give us the needed courage to step towards freedom today by nailing that label to the cross and in turn, receiving that new name, that exchange that we're promised. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.